Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey, Jackie. Hey, Galit. Welcome to episode two. I'm so excited. Yay. I, you know, recording episode one um, was a little bit of a different experience because I felt like we were going to be chatting and then, you know, we would maybe have a couple of listeners. But in reality, episode one was a gigantic success. Yeah, I was super happy. I fully anticipated that we would have our moms and our spouses listen to us and you know actually we had hundreds of people tune in and listen and download on iTunes so we just can't thank you guys enough we're so happy that you enjoyed it we're getting a ton of positive feedback and yeah it's just awesome yeah and we hope that you enjoyed Andrew Brady's interview uh listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it with him he's really an exceptional musician in person it was awesome to chat Definitely. And of course, we can't spill the beans quite yet. But some of the people that we have lined up to come on the podcast, I just I can't wait. It's going to be a really cool project and lots of exciting things to come. Yeah, absolutely. So what is new with you? Well, we are in the last week of class here at Southern Miss. And next week is jury week and finals and all of that. My poor students are so stressed. I can tell they're not sleeping very much and they are, you know, really focused on doing well this last push to the end of the semester. So for all of you students out there, you can do it. We believe in you. Just keep going. (laughs) It's a really tough time of the semester. Everybody understands that and we wish you the most success. It is a really stressful time for students and faculty alike. What tips do you have for how to handle this stress? How do you approach self-care during this time? So my number one go-to, both for me and for my students and anybody who will listen to me talk, is drink water. You have to drink water. If you've got a jury coming up, let's say on Wednesday, you want to start drinking eight glasses of water every day, maybe on Saturday or Sunday. Um, It really helps keep your brain nice and clear and focused and avoid dry mouth. I know that's really annoying when you have to do a performance and you're nervous and your mouth gets really dry. So my number one tip is drink lots of water and don't wait until that day to do it because then you'll just be running to the bathroom all day (laughs) so do it do it uh three four days before and just you know really focus on having that water bottle with you and drinking before you're thirsty um work on big picture stuff like phrasing and playing long passages um and when it's all done feel free to reward yourself because no matter how it went, you put yourself out there and you tried and you did a lot of work and you should reward yourself for for all of the hard work you've put in all semester long. Yeah, and I find as a faculty member, you know, like I said, it's 
an equally stressful time for us. And so I think for me, the schedule and the calendar is so key during this time of the semester, looking ahead and being very realistic and pragmatic about how much time you actually have and how you want to use that time. Um, so you're probably having to delegate between jury practice and read making and also writing papers and that type of thing um, for us grading and um, mm-hmm. all that. So really looking and saying, okay, if I have, you know, three open hours in this day reasonably, um, how am I going to fit lunch and dinner and breakfast in there? How much am I going to practice? How much am I going to study or work on that paper? Um Am I sleeping enough? Those types of things to know, okay, if I'm going to get enough sleep, I got to go to bed by this time. And if I'm going to get my practice time in, I got to wake up by this time. And um, actually, Tony Marie in the interview has some really good thoughts on that. So I'm not going to spoil them. But um, my biggest piece of advice is go to the calendar and really schedule in your time and your routine as much as you can. So you hit everything without encountering this big ball of stress over, you know, some big thing that you haven't even started yet. Just chip it away, chip away at the tasks slowly. Oh, I love that. And then once you're done with your allotted time, you move on to the next thing so that you stay on target. Yes. But, you know, this time of the semester is not only stress, it's also a lot of fun with um, so many studios have end of the semester and especially holiday themed um, traditions and parties that they have. Do you do anything special with the Southern Miss Oboes? Yes, we are partnering up with the bassoons and all of the double reads are coming over to my house for... um, a meal. I don't think we've decided exactly what we're going to do yet. Last year we did potluck, um, but maybe this year we'll provide all of the food. And we do uh, white elephant gifts, and everybody comes over, and it's really fun because we have a lot of uh, different students, and some of them are from different countries, so we get to, you know, just ha- hang out with each other and have a nice time. What do you guys do? We have a couple of holiday traditions. We have, um, the first one is there's a local business called Cup and Cork, which is kind of a um, coffee shop by day, wine bar, bistro restaurant by night. That is a local business that everyone in Cape Girardeau loves. It's very popular. And it's in downtown Cape, which has a first Friday Um, festival the first Friday of every month all these businesses downtown open up their doors they have entertainment um, and people will come and kind of meander through the businesses and it's this um, exciting time for the community and so last year the students said we want to go double read caroling (laughs) and oh that's so fun so yeah I was thinking of places that I could take them And I thought of Cup and Cork. And so we went down there and we played for actually an hour and a half. They wanted a lot of music. Um, And they said, we'd love to make this an annual tradition. We want you guys for first Friday, December every year for as long as you're willing to do it. So that's very cool. And that's so cool. I, I know it's a lot of fun. We wear Santa hats. We wear reindeer antlers. And it's just a goofy you know, double read <laughs> geek time. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't want a bunch of double reads playing in a public place? Tell me that. Exactly. And it's not the largest public place either, but the CMO <laughs> students are such good sports. You know, we get 
um, students from other studios coming out to support us and that type of thing. And best of yet, they pay us in food. So I found that with college students, the best currency is free food. So they are happy to do it. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. And so we put on our Facebook page a uh, question. Uh, what do your studios do? And we got some very cool responses of what various studios do. The University of Iowa Bassoon Studio does a soup night every year. And as alumni, I have gone back, um, I think only once since I graduated, but it's such an annual tradition that, yeah, you'll have those of us who've since graduated go back and um he, they make uh, several soups, but Benjamin Coelho and his family, but the one you go back for is the matzo ball soup that his wife makes. So <laughs> um, that's a really fun uh, studio community time. There is nothing better than matzo ball soup. Yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> we also had um, the University of Kentucky Oboe Studio write and tell us what they do. Do you want to share that with the listeners? Sure. Um, They have a big potluck meal, sometimes brunch, sometimes dinner. Side note, brunch potluck sounds amazing. It does. (laughs) Yeah. And they celebrate with Secret Santa and Studio Superlatives. That's so much fun. Yeah. Jackie, what would be your Studio Superlative? I think definitely Teacher's Pet. Anyone who was... (laughs) In school with me knows that my currency was the approval of my teachers. I was very eager to please, you know, um, very organized and on top of things and just, you know, so happy to be helpful. And it really suited my perfectionist (laughs) nature. I undoubtedly would be teacher's pet. What about you? Uh Um, I would probably be uh, the biggest Beyonce fan. (laughs) I don't know how uh, standard a superlative that is, but sure, we'll go with it. (laughs) For this episode's shout-outs, I have a really great one. Um, it's another podcast, actually. It's called Music Publishing Podcast with Dennis Tabensky. I just got introduced to it, um, and I listened to one episode, episode 26. It's another interview-style podcast, and Dennis is a vocalist and a composer. And it has a lot to do with um, how to be a musician today. So there's a lot of material on entrepreneurialism and time management and, you know, finding opportunities for yourself beyond uh, college, you know, your college career. So once you actually go out into that big, scary world, he has a lot of resources. Um, Even on his website, if you go to musicpublishingpodcast.com. You can see, um, if you click on each episode, he has a whole description of what they talk about in the episode and then some links for relevant resources, uh, which are really great. And the episode that I listened to is with Angela Miles Beeching. She's an author. She wrote a book called Beyond Talent, Creating a Successful Career in Music. And I had to listen to it a couple of times because there was so much information in the interview. And I found it all really interesting and 
relevant. Um, it's called time management. They're talking about time management, but she gives a lot of really interesting and helpful career advice. So for people who might be about to graduate or people who have already graduated and are starting to make their way in the world in the arts, uh, this would be a really cool resource. Um, and then once I listened to that episode, I dove into Angela Beeching's blog it's found on angelabeaching.com and it's just amazing i mean she has multiple blog posts just about how to write an interesting bio so i've been reading a lot about bios and then inspired to sort of revamp my own so hopefully that will happen pretty soon but i f- i found it to be an incredible resource and i'm so glad that i ran into it very cool um yeah i'm eager to check that out that'll be awesome what is your shout out jackie i have two shout outs this week and they're more on the lighter side um my first shout out is reads with fashion.tumblr.com there is also a reads with fashion instagram account and the bassoonist who runs Reads with Fashion is Elliot Cobb, and he's a student at the University of Illinois Bassoon Studio. And he does what can only be described as read art. Um, he takes the turban of the bassoon read, and he'll do all sorts of things with it. So sometimes they're just really beautiful. Sometimes they have... Um, squiggly eyes or bows or (laughs) handles like a teapot we have a bride and groom read and best of all the thing that won me over was there is a read inspired by one of the drag queens from rupaul's drag race which if anyone (laughs) knows me that's my favorite show of all time so a ton of fun check out reads with fashion either on instagram or tumblr for ideas of how to zhuzh up your bassoon read case it's really cool and fun to check out i can't wait that's so creative it is i just wonder what happens when like it's not a good read i don't know if he waits until it's like oh this is a nice read and (laughs) then decorates the turban or if it's like he spends all this time on the this beautiful turban and then plays it and it's like oh you know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know maybe elliot listens and he'll let us know And my second shout out is um, in the holiday spirit. Uh, Many of our listeners will be aware of the Breaking Winds Bassoon Quartet. And they have, um, I think, a couple holiday videos. But the one that I like and the one that I always bring out and share with my students this time of year is um, the Nutcracker Chinese Dance. And they have um, all of these panels, kind of like the Brady Bunch, you know, um, the members of the Bassoon Quartet laid out across the screen and all these various oh, cool. squares yeah and they do the parts and overlap them and visually it's hilarious they're doing all sorts of um different things in the various squares and then it's also just this fun bassoony geeky arrangement of the chinese dance from the nutcracker so i recommend that our listeners um if they haven't already they should check out uh thebreakingwinds.com that's the ensemble's website um but we'll also link to this specific video in the description of the episode awesome
This episode is brought to you by Hodge Products Incorporated. Hodge Products is a predominantly online double reed shop selling reeds, cane, tools, and accessories for oboes and bassoons. They are also the designer and manufacturer of Hodge Silk Swabs, Hodge Student Reed Cases, and the new owner of Adam Shaper Tips. They have the largest selection of reed cases for oboe and bassoon in the U.S. Holiday sales are in effect through the month of December with 25% off all Pisoni products, 25% off all old production Adam Shaper Tips, 10% off select bassoon gift items, and a special promotion with Magic Reads. All orders over $75 get free shipping. Awesome deal. Make sure to visit www.hodgeproductsinc.com to take advantage of all these deals. Better yet, when you use the coupon code DRDISH, you get an extra 15% off of your entire order. That's 15% off for our listeners with the coupon code DRDISH. My students and I love Hodge products. Their customer service is exceptional and their website is very easy to navigate. Make sure to visit www.hodgeproductsinc.com to take advantage of these deals today. So episode two means our very first oboe guest. And Galit, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who we're welcoming to the podcast this time? I am so thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Tony Marie Marcioni. She is the assistant professor of oboe at the University of Kentucky. And I first heard her play and met her at the IDRS conference in Columbus, Georgia this past summer. And I attended her recital, and I got to tell you, the whole time I was listening to this recital, my jaw was on the floor. I was so impressed with her artistry and her technique, and what what stuck out to me the most was actually her incredible dynamic range. Um, She could play so softly with consistency. And so loudly and everything in between, I just found it so impressive. And I, I love going to performances where the musicians just really go for it. And that's exactly what she did. Um, and I've been impressed with her performances and her level of playing and teaching ever since. So I'm really thrilled to uh, introduce our listeners to this interview with Dr. Tony Marie Marcioni. Welcome to the podcast, Tony Marie. I wonder if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself and your training and how you got to where you are today. Hello, and thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm currently the assistant professor of oboe at the University of Kentucky. Um, I landed in Lexington by way of New York City, uh, which may not seem like a direct route, but I really felt like getting this job was kind of the culmination of all of my years of experience up to that point. Um, I ended in New York by studying at the Juilliard School, where I did my master's and my doctorate, and then also did the postgraduate fellowship at Carnegie Hall, and it's now called Ensemble Connect, previously known as Ensemble ACJW or the Academy. And um, 
was really, after finishing that program, um, was really inspired to go for an, a university position. I love the variety that my life has here, doing um, a combination of all sorts of things um, that incorporate teaching and, and research and scholarship and, and service. As you've said, you teach full-time, and you also perform a ton. So my question is, how do you balance the two, and does one influence and improve the other? That is a, a great question, and, and absolutely. I really feel that both teaching and performing are absolutely linked to one another. In many ways, I only feel qualified to teach the oboe because I perform, and my performing absolutely gets better because I'm teaching. Um, it, sometimes I laugh and think, if I only did what I told my students to do myself, I would be much better off. Um, but I, I really love... Uh, teaching after a performance because I always get something that I learned from that performance that then I can use as an example for my students. Oh, well, this happened to me and this is how I fixed it. So I've, I find that they're absolutely linked in that way. Uh, balancing my life is another story altogether. It's very difficult, as you know, to have the energy to take care of your own playing and your own read making after you after you've been teaching for five, six, or seven hours in a row. And sometimes that's the last thing that you want to do um, after a long day. But um, you just got to in order to keep your skills up. And so that's something that I've found. I've had to find interesting ways to <laughs> to uh, fix that problem, and that often requires getting up really early to try to get an hour of warm-up or an hour of something in before I teach. Um, even if it means 5 or 6 a.m., my brain is freshest then, and it's nice to have an hour of your own work out of the way before you, you know, give yourself to your students. Along those lines, I wonder if you could talk to us about any approaches you have or routines you have to self-care and um, that delicate work-life balance, musician-human balance, and how you approach that. Well, one thing that I have learned um, over these past few years is the importance of having downtime. Um, there's not a lot of it, as you know, but when I do have downtime, I have to really have downtime. It can't be, oh, I'm going to uh, do some emails while I watch TV or, oh, I'm going to watch Grey's Anatomy while I work on reads. It's got to be just complete relaxation. We spend so much of our time being on and being outward. And um, I'm naturally introverted, which I think some people would be very surprised to find out. So I have to make sure that I have some time to recharge my batteries. Um, that usually means because I, I schedule myself pretty tight. So that often means that I will go, go, go for five, six or seven weeks at a time. And then I'll have one week where I just do nothing. That can be difficult. But luckily, we just had uh, Thanksgiving break. So that was my, my week off. Um, on a daily basis, I try to make sure that I'm eating well, not just eating, but trying to eat nice food and treat my body well in that way. 
Um, of course, I, in an ideal world, we would sleep enough and exercise daily. I really do believe in exercise for perf- uh, fitness performance, you know, how exercise affects my oboe playing. And then I have my wonderful dog, Rita, who is such, she's not officially a comfort dog or officially a, um, a service dog, but man, she sure is for me. The first time I heard you play uh, was at the IDRS conference in Columbus, Georgia, and I heard you perform Discipline uh, by Lansing McCloskey, and I remember just being so blown away by your musicianship, but most especially your dynamic range, and more specifically, your soft dynamic range. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about how you go for those really quiet and intense tone colors in your performance. I know for me, that tends to be uh, the first thing that goes when I get nervous, so I would love to hear about that. Well, you're so kind to to say such nice things about my playing. Um, I've always loved dynamics. I can't explain why, but I I really do love them, and I love trying to be fearless and go for it. Um, I think that it used to be something that I would leave not to chance, but maybe be spontaneous about. And as I've as I've gotten a little bit older and um, hopefully wiser, I've tried to incorporate a lot more dynamic practice into my practicing and trying to be um, fearless about it, even in my practice, which I think in my youth, I wouldn't, I wouldn't always go for it in my practice. I would practice for technique or I'd practice for learning music, but I wasn't always practicing for that. Um, I think a lot of it is also, it's, uh, it's definitely read related. I, um, I'd love to think that I could play with, with a great dynamic range on any read, but I definitely think certain reads are, are more, um, predisposed to that. And that has a lot to do with, for me, for the, to the efficiency of the read. I really need a read that will, um, have a healthy throat opening. I know that sounds so strange, but the back of the reed for me um, has to remain open so that I can do a lot of the controlling in the space inside of my mouth. And then I think a lot of it has to do with the um, the combination of that with the airspeed. So I think all of us can play as soft as we want as long as the air doesn't stop. It's like the air has to be super, super fast, but not a lot of it. I know you've done a few commissioning projects, and I wonder if you could talk to us about um, your passion for commissioning and some of your positive experiences in working with composers. My most recent project was a, um, a, we- a work that Galit just mentioned by composer Lansing McCloskey, this monumental, huge new oboe uh, sonata, I guess. It's really a duo for oboe and piano called Discipline. Um, and Lansing was actually my uh, freshman year theory teacher back in college. So it's kind of funny how those relationships come back at various points in our life. Um, but I would say... Um, Throughout my life, contemporary music has held a really important place because it has always challenged me and helped me 
realized that I could do things that I never realized I was capable of before. So another big project for me was a work that was commissioned by Carnegie Hall when I was in Ensemble um, ACJW. They commissioned an oboe quartet. And Ryan Gallagher, who is a um, Cornell composer uh, and also Juilliard before that, he wrote this piece that is just unbelievable. It is stunning. Um, but when I got the music, I counted 38 high A's in it. <laughs> um, yes, high A's. And I don't, I think I had played high A once before that. And so to have to do these crazy leaps up to it from all registers and crazy scalar passages, I didn't think I could do it. And I called, we had a conversation and I said, well, this, this piece looks great, but, but why? And can we, can we do anything about this? I just don't think I can play this. Um, and he, he really believed in, in the sound and he really wanted the specific thing. So I, I just, I forced myself to do it. Um, and I learned I could do it and it really improved my high register. I'll tell you that. Um, and the other, the other thing that's fresh in my mind, and this is not a work that I commissioned by any stretch, but um, Jonathan Harvey has this incredible work for oboe and English horn. It's called Sprechgesang. Um, and I played it with the new Juilliard Ensemble when I was doing my doctorate. And that work um, uses an incredible amount of extended techniques, ranging from multiphonics to microtones to playing without the reed, but buzzing your lips like a trumpet into the um, into the oboe, um, all sorts of things. And I had about four weeks to learn this piece, and I basically had to learn a whole new fingering system for all the for all the different pitches I had to play. That was also something I just didn't think I could do, and I did it. So for me, um, I love working with composers directly whenever possible, of course, because it keeps our art form living and breathing. You know, it's new music is what is what makes us current. Um, but also just the whole process of tackling contemporary music at whatever level that is for any performer, it it pushes us beyond what we ever thought we could accomplish. Earlier in the interview, you were talking a little bit about reads and what you look for in a read, but I'm curious to know um, a little bit more about your read-making process, perhaps how often you make reads, um, maybe a little bit more about what you look for in a read, and what's the best advice you can give to somebody who is learning how to be read-independent? Well, in an ideal world, I would make reads every day, absolutely. Um Perhaps I wouldn't be tying them every day, but I would definitely be doing something with my reads every day. Um, sometimes I do make reads in batches, so I will tie six or seven in a stretch and then not tie for a few days and then do it again and kind of stockpile blanks for a while. But no matter what, we have to I have to at least give my reads some sort of attention every day, even if it just means I'm gonna clip the tip and dust it off at the end or, you know, scrape the back a little or something. I just find that if I keep on top of it that way, it becomes much less of a stressor down the line. Um, in terms of what I look for for a read, um, I've been talking a lot about this with my students recently, but efficiency, I think, is 
is the broad word I would use, the umbrella term. And then underneath that, efficiency of all sorts of things. So, you know, efficiency of articulation. I want a reed that's going to rebound when I tongue. I absolutely need a reed that is stable intonation. I just can't, I don't have the chops to hold up the pitch of the high notes. Um, I need a reed that has an efficient response. I can't, um, I don't, really want to work too hard in terms of getting the read to go. But at the same time, I need an efficiency of sound. I, I don't want to have to cover the sound. I want there to be the right type of cushion uh, in the read. And then, you know, the dynamic range. There are some reads that just won't play loud. And that to me is also tiring. So I want that efficiency of, of being able to blow against a reed to get a forte, but then also being able to back off if I want to go for the triple piano at the end of the pulling sonata, that sort of thing. So I'd say um, that's kind of my, my reed philosophy stems from the fact of that I... Um, I want to work my, my, I want my physical body to be able to work as efficiently as possible. And I want my read to allow me to do that. Um, in terms of my best advice for, for read making, um, one, one thing comes from what my own teacher, Elaine DuVos would say, which was, you really need to make a thousand reads before you know anything about reads. And you can either ruin one year of your life or 10 years of your life. So um, I love that because I've, I really wasted a lot of time <clears throat> not knowing how to make reads. So um, when I finally decided I was going to get my act together and learn how to make reads, that's basically what I had to do. And I think that's great advice. So I try, I tell my own students, there's power in numbers. You know, you want to have a full read case at all times of reads in various stages. You never want to just play on old reads because then what are you going to do when you get a new read? Um, so I try to have them always making reads in various stages. Um, I also like to say that you should treat your reads like infants. You know, they need constant attention. If you leave them, let them be for a while without, they're, they're going to let you know it. Um, and then I think the other thing for me and that I found has helped a lot in teaching read making is that the quality of the blank of the, you know, the blank slate or the blank canvas, that blank read is so important. So I often do not let my students scrape one scrape on a read until they can consistently bring me perfect blanks. And I do that because, um, well, first of all, I don't want to be trying to fix a bunch of fatally flawed reads <laughs> because I hate that. Um, but the other thing is that I, that, that, I really only think the read is going to be as good as that blank is. So we make sure I try to make sure that they can um, master that before we do anything else. Uh, and I think that the quality of the materials is really goes hand in hand with that. So it's a real it's a real privilege that we have all the gouging equipment and everything for the students to use even from their freshman year, which I think is fantastic here and a real a real benefit and a and thanks to the University of Kentucky for for getting us that equipment. Speaking of advice, this is going to be available for our listeners on December 15th, which for many schools around the country is jury week. So I wonder if you have advice for our student listeners in particular on um, preparation for those um, important performances, and particularly if any of them might be struggling with self-doubt or performance anxiety, any hints you have for them? 
Well, with in the case of juries, I would I like to to say that remember that the panel is always on your side. We want, you know, your teachers and and the other faculty who are listening to you want you to do well and we want you to play our best, uh, your best. So, we're never never think of being judged or um we're graded, you know, just think of it as a performance. And I think also I tell my own students to just think of sharing the music, the sharing your progress, sharing what you've learned over the semester with, with who you're playing for. So it doesn't have to be a scary um, experience. It can be really positive. Um, in terms of self-doubt, man, that's something that we deal with every day, isn't it? It never goes away, no matter what level that you're at. And, um, I think, you know, having a plan for every moment of, of your performance, thinking th everything through, having an interpretive plan, and then not just having that plan, but knowing that you are capable of executing that plan is so important. Um, we're, we are all capable of doing more than we, we know. Do you have any favorite um, memories of a past performance that you would like to share with us? A couple different things come to mind. One of my most favorite places in the world, which I've only discovered recently, is Moab, Utah. And it's a place that I only discovered by being invited to the music festival there. And in case you haven't been to Moab, it's all red rocks. It's just beautiful. It's um, where Arches National Park is. And um, Leslie Tompkins and Michael Barrett, the artistic directors of the Moab Music Festival, have created this amazing world there of um, where they, they have music that goes so well with their surroundings. And one of their concert series is out in a grotto in the middle of Canyonlands National Park. And you can only get there by jet boat, private jet boat down the Colorado River. And they take you into this cave off the river. They bring in a Steinway piano and um, you're surrounded by red rocks from, you know, up super high above you and blue skies. You're in the middle of the desert um, at 5,000 feet altitude. And, um, you know, they people come from all over the world for this festival. And I've been fortunate to go there twice. Um, the first year I went in 2012, I was performing the Bach double. And then I went back, I was lucky enough to be invited back in 2015. And I played the Schumann romances. And to have performed two of my absolute favorite pieces in the world, in one of the most stunning, natural settings in the world. Um, that is something that I I will never, ever, ever forget. And I just feel so, so lucky um, to have done that. Another another performance, or maybe string of performances that I'll never forget. Um, I was really, I was fortunate to be invited on the National Symphony Orchestra Tour of Europe um, this past February. And um, one of the really special nights was was performing in Berlin in the, in the Philharmonie. And we did... Um, Brahms won that night and again one of my most favorite pieces and to be in such a historic hall and you know thinking of all the people who have been there before and um, sharing some piece of history that way and sitting around just amazing people in an orchestra like that is is really special. 
do you have any recordings, um, pieces, or musicians that you look to for inspiration or that you just enjoy listening to? Well, my own teachers have been such a source of inspiration to me over the years. Um, just thinking of their beautiful sounds in the orchestras that they play in. Um, other, another CD that just comes to mind is Alex Klein's solo Bach and Telemann CD. When I discovered that in college, I, I must have listened to that on repeat for days and days on end. There's something very special about that CD, I think. Um, I also love listening to solo piano music and string quartets and um, symphonies, but I have to admit, I often don't listen to music. Um, I Sometimes I need to have my head cleared um, to get to make sure that my interpretation is my interpretation. Sometimes I'll listen to something um, when I'm starting to learn a piece or but I, I try to walk away from that quickly and spend more time with the score to make sure that I'm really I'm really uh, sure of what I want and not just trying to mimic someone else. What would you say to a younger version of yourself? Oh, so many things. But I, I think one thing would be not to lose faith. Um, I, uh, my oboe training started a little bit later than many of my colleagues. Um, we didn't, I didn't really have an oboe specific teacher until pretty late in my development. And um, music was always very, very much in my background. I studied piano from a very young age. And, you know, I was playing, I played viola and oboe, but um, I didn't have an oboe, a teacher who played the oboe professionally until my, pretty late. And so when I got, even when I got to Juilliard, I felt behind in a lot of ways. And at the time when a lot of my fellow students were winning jobs and not just small jobs, big jobs. It was really hard to feel discouraged and wonder what am I even doing here? If I'm not capable of doing this at the level that these other people are, is this even worth doing? And I, I would try to, you know, I tried to quit a couple times and, um, I just could never, I could never get away from it. I always came back. And so I think I would tell a younger version to just stay, stay, stay with it and don't give up and work harder. I can always work harder. I look, think back to some of that time that went wasted because I, you know, was distracted, um, or off doing something else. And I, I wish that I wish I would have had that voice telling me to make more reads. What are some of your favorite pieces in the oboe repertoire or the orchestral repertoire or chamber for that matter to play? Well, I like to say that the Howells Sonata is my musical soulmate. Um, there's something about that piece that I just cannot, I never get tired of it. And I, I think it just gets me. I don't know what it is, but there's something about it that I just, I love it. And I would play it, I would perform it every day if I could. Um, the Schumann Romances is another one. And I love going back to that piece um, with fresh eyes every time. And I love to make small changes or, you know, do something a little bit differently. Um, also, the Bach Partita, the the um, one that we steal from the flutes, the G minor one, 
that is a piece that never, ever gets easier for me, no matter how much I work on it. I've been studying it for a decade now, and every time I play it, it's it's never easier, and I love that about it. Um, I also change my mind about breathing or cadence points. I mean, especially in that allemand that is perpetual motion, basically with 16th notes for days. Um, I love the fact that I can reinterpret it every time. In terms of orchestral music, man, aren't we lucky? We get all, all of the best things. <laughs> um, I have this never ending love affair with Tchaikovsky's music. Um, that's something that I'll, I will never get tired of playing. And I was I was lucky. I just, for the first time, got to perform the Fourth Symphony just last weekend. So it was really fun. But really all of it, all music. I love it all. <laughs> I could talk, I could, I could answer this question for an hour. <laughs> what is next on the agenda for you in terms of performing? What do you have on the horizon? Well, in... February, I am playing the Marcello Concerto with Ensemble Connect. I um, am fortunate to be invited back to do that. um, We're doing it at Skidmore College and then also at Carnegie Hall. And after that, um, let's see, in March, um, oh, in February and March, I'll be back with the Iris Orchestra in Memphis. And I have a few master classes next semester at Ohio University. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, and planning for next season already. I'm planning a recital tour in Pennsylvania for the fall. For the fall. Oh, and hopefully IDRS. I'm, I'm hoping to make it up to the conference in June. Tony Marie, what advice would you give to somebody who aspires to have a career like yours? Well, first, I would ask them a question that someone asked me long ago, which is, can you be happy doing anything else in the world? And if the answer is yes, I would tell them to go do that instead of trying to do music. Um, The reason is, of course, because this is just so hard, such a hard career, and, and it takes... 400% dedication to it every day of your life. And if there's any part of you that's not willing to do that 400% dedication, then you're better off serving yourself in a different profession. Um, If they are absolutely committed to a career in music, I would say um, to learn how to practice intensely and efficiently as early as you can. Um, As I alluded to before, I wasted a lot of time when I was younger. (laughs) Um, And I think now that I finally learned how to practice, I, I wish, you know, I think of all the untapped potential of my 20s that I I missed out on. Um, I think I'd also say to be open to the world and all of the different possibilities that can come your way uh, in terms of a life in music. Uh, I think a career can look a lot of different ways at at this point. And I think, you know, if you had told me 10 years ago that I'd be doing what I'm doing today, I probably would have laughed. I don't think I've envisioned my career to look like this and and likewise I think I had to do a lot of stuff different types of things to even get to this point and lots of things that I undertook that I had no idea would lead me to this point um and I think I think that that's really what is so amazing about being a musician is is kind of this unlimited possibility and kind of 
potential that it has. You know, there's we never exhaust the repertoire. We ne- we never are finished making reads. You're never, you know, you can always be better. You can always play quieter. You can always play louder. You can always play faster or, you know, or slower or whatever. I think, I think that's what's so awesome about it. And what keeps me going is, is knowing that I'll never be my best. And that can be scary. And, um, but I find it to be ultimately, um, inspiring. And so I think that, uh, you know, a person, a young person thinking about going into music has to, to want that. And, um, you know, there's a lot by nature, there's a lot of adversity in a career in music and there's so much more rejection than acceptance, um, just as a general rule. And so we have to be able to, to get, to move beyond that. Tony Marie, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast for our listeners who want to check you out, do you have a website where they can find you on the internet? Yes, I do. I am at TonyMarieM.com. And um, the University of Kentucky Oboe Studio also has a Facebook page and a Twitter page. You can check us out there. It's Facebook.com slash UK Oboes, or our Twitter handle is also UK Oboes. Um, I'd love to to have some some new oboe players on there. That'd be great. And bassoonists, of course, too. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So that's all we have for this time. Make sure to tune in to our next episode, which will be released on January 1st, where we will be talking about, among other things, New Year's resolutions. So we want to hear from you. Do you set musical New Year's resolutions, read making? How do you reset for the upcoming year and how are you going to approach 2017? So make sure to email us at doublereaddish at gmail.com with all of your New Year's resolutions so we can include them in the next episode. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at doublereaddish and we would love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. Until next time, may your embouchures last through the copious Nutcracker, Messiah, and Holiday Pops gigs.